Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is my truth. Tell me yours. On this episode, I spoke with John Robert Connors. Uh, JR is the drummer for Cave-In. Um, he's also played with a lot of other bands in the past. He also has a brand new solo project called Marilith, which is what we what was sort of the impetus for this conversation but we covered a lot of ground we talked about a lot of uh life stuff a lot of music stuff and uh i really enjoyed this conversation it was cool to get to spend some time talking with jr and uh yeah i really hope you enjoy my conversation with john robert connors Yeah, I don't know where that was. It might have been, I'm trying to remember because there were on that tour, because we did the same kind of like package with Caven and Old Man Gloom. Right. And we did it here in the States and then we also did it in Europe. Yeah. And I think that I remember being filmed and I think it might have been either London. It had to have been London. Yeah. Because we did, I don't think we played France on that trip. There's, but I don't know. I mean, right. right, right. <laughs> it's like years of going to the same places, sure. you know? Well, and there was like a weird, like, like it almost looked like an old, like, old subway station or something. There was like a couple of arches. Oh, yeah. Yes. But I don't know. It, it, it looked cool. But anyways. Um, yeah, a lot of those places over in Europe are like, you know, old bunkers and stuff. Right. You know, it's, it's pretty cool, but it's crazy to think of the origins of these places. Sure. And why that they're, they're there. And it might not be like a bunker for war, but it could also be like an old like winery or something right. or like a mead hall or, you know, whatever, yeah. you know, and where they used to keep all the casks and liquor yeah. and stuff, you know? So those places are always really cool. Well, it's, it's just crazy. Like when you go to Europe to realize how young this country is. Yeah. Um, I lived in Arizona for mm-hmm. four years and, um, I lived in a little town called Jerome, Arizona, which is a little copper mine town on the side of a mountain. Mm. At one point, I moved into a half a house. It was basically the top floor, and the bottom floor was, like, not finished. Like, like it had been finished, but it had fallen into ruin. Yeah. Just, like, whatever. And they're like, this is actually the oldest house in town. It's 100 years old. I'm just like... Oh, yeah. (laughs) The second house I grew up in in New Hampshire is 250 years old, so you got nothing on me. But then you go over there, and you're like... It's like things built on top of other things. Yeah. Like, this cathedral is 1,200 years old. Yeah. It's really eye-opening, especially... And I remember that. Like, it was definitely... You know, culture shock is real when you go over to Europe or anywhere else different from where you grew up in, I guess. And it's, it's like, it's almost like a smack in the face. It's like, oh, okay. Like this is part of the real world and it's way different from what we have in the States, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting knowing that this country is only, you know, a few hundred years old, you know? Um, yeah, it's crazy. Especially I remember, you know, I think it was 2000 or 2001, we went over to Europe for the first time and it was just such a shock, yeah. but it, in the best possible way, yeah. you know, yeah. definitely changes who you are was if you your, let it, you know. Was that your first time traveling abroad? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the first time Cabin went was the first time that I went to Europe. Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, I had only traveled, you know, through the other states before that with, you know, family trips and stuff yeah. when I was a kid, but yeah. yeah, that was the first time that I ever left the country. 
Uh, I, I, we probably went to Canada, I think, sure. but yeah, overseas, that was the first yeah. trip. It's, I, I always, I know Canada is another country, but I, yeah. I'm just like, ah, it's really just it's close enough. enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, was that, was that, uh, touring behind Jupiter or was that, uh, uh, that would have been until your heart stops still. So Canada, I mean, the first time we went there it would be, I want to say it was with Iyer yeah. and that would have been, I'm thinking to myself, recalling it like Buzzo trip. So the van that we took around the country was, we named it Buzzo yeah. after the great Buzzo. Sure. Buzzo. Um, yeah. Uh, but that I think was right between the cusp. Maybe we had just released Jupiter, yeah. but it was, we were still playing until your heart stops songs on that trip. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's probably the first time that we would have gone to Montreal. Uh, and I don't know if we really went anywhere else. We may have went to like a small town up there, but yeah. uh, someplace that I would never remember, you know? Yeah. I'm sure it was great, uh-huh. you know, but, <laughs> sure. you know, my memory is short. So, uh, yeah, I think that that was probably the first time that we had actually left like, you know, Methuen in the States, right. you know? Right. Um, but that was just, you know, just after us going to Florida, which was our first trip with uh, Strike Three, yeah. uh, Caleb's other band. And um, yeah, that all happened really quickly, actually, in the, around that time. We had just gotten out of high school. Yeah. I actually dropped out of high school to go on that tour. Yeah. Um, so we, we tried to do a lot at that time, um, especially because we knew that like Adam was going to college. Mm-hmm. So he had limited time to play with. Um, so yeah, I think that's the first time that we actually left the country, technically speaking. But yeah. again, I think of Canada as just the northern part of right. the well, North America, you know. Right. How how is there uh parental reaction to you dropping out to pursue uh, Yeah, I mean, I think at that point they had just accepted that I was uh not going to finish high school. Yeah. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um because at that time I was the stereotypical, you know, problem child and you know, I feel bad in a way without going into too much <laughs> background on my my growing up, but yeah. uh, I feel bad sometimes about how I, you know, treated my parents sure. or lived my life in that way. Right. Cuz I was definitely really difficult to deal with, you yeah. know, looking back on it. And yeah. I think it I realize that more so now because I have children of my own, right. you know. Before that, I always held, you know, animosity and all this stuff. Sure. But, um, you know, most most of it is pretty unfounded, yeah. you know. Um, but there are certain things that, you know, I talk to my therapist about, you yeah. know. But, sure. Uh, yeah, I think at, at that point, I mean, it, I dropped out mainly because I'd stayed back freshman year. And, like, short, history, short version of this history is uh, I went through five years of high school after that, passed every grade, and up until my senior year. Yeah. And then uh, halfway through my senior year, they do the credits and all that to be able to pass on. And um, I was one credit shy of graduating that year. And I was like, listen, I'm not coming back for another full year just because of one credit. And at that time, I was really fed up with school. And I think they were kind of fed up with me as well, to be honest. Um, and it was just one of those moments where I turned 18. I was like, I'm allowed legally to sign myself out of school. So I did. Yeah. And I had jobs since I was 14. So at that point I was able to kind of meet my own needs, you right. know? Um, but so, you know, and then we had this tour and I was like, well, you know, I kind of have, I, this is what I want to do. I want to yeah. pursue this. So I just kind of went all in on it, you yeah. know? 
Um, and it's amazing how it turned out because right. <laughs> I really didn't expect it to be this far, you know, like sure. in my forties, still playing in the right. same band all over the world, you know? Well, cause that, that part of the story, there's probably tens of thousands of people who hmm. have the same origin story who are now, you know, carpenters or construction workers yeah. or whatever. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but right. like the only reason other people are hearing about this is because... It went well. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's, you know, that's the case with, um, I think, a lot of aspects in life. I mean, I have a hard time when people get really upset when, say, celebrities die, you know. Right. Um, you know, not to harp too much on death, you know, but um, because it's like, well, you know, okay, these celebrities died, but just like, you know, a month ago, maybe someone's family member died and no one besides their family is really giving a shit, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's nice that people do that. Don't get me wrong. Sure. I mean, we've seen the benefit of that, you know, firsthand um, with, you know, Caleb's family and all that. Sure. And that was that was amazing to be a part of that whole kind of process, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's it's something that I, I'm kind of cynical about when I read it in the headlines and people are like, you know, really this outpouring of these really famous celebrities, like right. A-list and B-list celebrities. It's yeah. like, well there's a lot of people who die, right. you know, and, and they have lots of stories as well in right. their lifeline. And it's like, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing for me to kind of care too much about celebrity sure. deaths. Sure. And I, I don't, you know, and I think it's just because there's a lot of tragedy that happens in everyone's lives and everyone has to deal with it right. and to kind of uh, blow, you know, people's stories out of proportion just because they're, "Quote unquote famous." Sure, you know, it's it's tough for me to kind of deal with in a positive way. I, guess. I would imagine. Well, and but I think, and I don't know if that makes sense. But. No, that definitely <laughs> makes sense. And I would I would imagine that like you guys have a unique perspective on this. You know, um, with Caleb's passing yeah. and everything, where you guys are in the public eye, and you know, I'm sure a lot of people, in probably 99 percent well intentioned, like reach out, but at some point. Mm. They're like, well, I'm trying to deal with my friend's death personally, yeah. and, you know, but also being in the public. But it was interesting because I, you know, I've talked to um, a lot of people over the years uh, ab about that and kind of how you guys processed it because it was really mm. interesting and and honestly, um, I think it helped a lot of people seeing you guys be very public about it right. um and you know I, I i remember at the the caleb benefit you know aaron turner at one point turning to everyone on stage and saying i love you i love mm -hmm. you and you know particularly in this type of scene where right. you know it's you know it's important to be aggro all the time yeah, yeah. being like an adult and being mm -hmm. like no love is important and yeah, support is yeah, yeah yeah i'm just like yeah i think that helped a lot of people yeah i mean and that's why i can understand the the benefit of it, don't mm -hmm. but um, yeah, it's 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 like I can really appreciate that, and I don't want to shoot myself in the foot by saying that I don't care about you know other people's you know celebrity deaths, for sure. instance. But um, I guess the the stock that I would put into people that I don't know dying, you know, or who have no real effect on my life, yeah. you know. Um, but it's also difficult too because I I totally recognize that. You know what we went through could help other people go through their own tragedies i guess yeah, yeah. um but you know it's hard because i'm 
I can be very cynical about it. Yeah. And I'm very kind of, I don't know if I can say that, but maybe kind of nihilistic about it. Yeah. Like, we're all going to die, right. you know, and uh, it, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what to say about that, because I remember in some of the press that we did for Heavy Pendulum anyways, yeah. you know, of course, that the topic of Caleb's death would continue to arise. And one of the uh, interviewers kind of made the comparison to someone that he had just lost, I think, like a week or two before. Yeah. And I guess in my stage of grief or working through Caleb's death and kind of coming to terms with it and allowing myself to move on from that. Yeah. Uh, it was very, uh, like I had already come to the point where I couldn't really help this person sure. deal with their grief yeah. in kind of a, maybe a positive way for them. Yeah. And I literally, I said, you know, like try not to worry about it cause we all die, you know? Right. And like, I started getting into the just kind of the reality of the situation like death is going to happen to us all you yeah. know and it's just better to accept it and come to terms with it as soon as possible you know yeah. and uh that's maybe not something that someone who's freshly going through grief needs to hear you know sure um it's not very uh consoling i guess you know to me it, it was sure. when i was going through my own process right i was going through a lot of existentialism and and that helped me, but that's just me, yeah. you know? Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of, I'm on shaky grounds with talking about that stuff. Because <laughs> sure. I, I think the way that I look at it is very different from a lot of people. Sure. You know? Well, I mean, we're all wired in different ways. Mm -hmm. And also, like, that may be, that, that may not have been any, like, comfort or help in the moment for that guy. Mm -hmm. But he's also in a very different place with his grief than yeah. you are with yours. You know, um, he may never be in the exact same spot that you are because mm -hmm. we're all different people, but it also may be something, you know, a year, two years, five years down the road. And like he might be in the same place and be like, Oh, Oh yeah. I, well, maybe I, now it makes sense. Yeah. 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 Or, and, but, and that's the thing too, is like it, talking about therapy. One of the things that, you know, my therapist had explained to me a couple of years ago, which was really helpful was the, the bullseye theory about like whenever someone goes through a traumatic event, mm. you know, be it, you know, a death or anything else, yeah. you know, you, you radiate out like, so the people that are most directly affected are, are the, the bullseye. Mm. And then people who know them are the next circle out yeah. people who know them. And basically the people in the center should radiate to the next level to get support and mm. vice versa. Yeah. It should never go inwards because that person, while they're going through it, can't be equipped to help yeah, the other person. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's also, you know, your like firsthand trauma you're always dealing with yourself and whoever it involves. So firsthand right. kind of, um, you know, dealings. And once you get outside and, that's the thing. As soon as something like that happens and you start to process it, yeah. it's only you and the core people who are going through it with you. And right. then once you get to the outward, like you were saying, the outer rings yeah. of, a, of a, you know, a dartboard, if you will, yeah. it's like, you know, you've already reached a place where now you're starting to talk to the people around you and, and now they're processing, processing it in kind of a, 
a delayed fashion, maybe, yeah. you know, and, and it, it radiates outwards from yeah. there. So that, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and it's cool that, that I got to hear that because maybe I'll remember that. that it was a, it was a huge, like, oh, moment for me. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, and it was funny because it helps me kind of deal with some of my own family stuff, like kind yeah. of with my siblings. Cause you know, at one point they were like looking for some support and I was like, Hey, this is something we all went through. Yeah. Like, I was like, I love you. And like, I know you're hurting, but so am I. And mm. like, I can't be that support for you right now. I was like, yeah. I was like, you know, I, you know, maybe I can help you find the support, mm. but like, I'm going through the same thing you are. And if I'm lifting you up, I'm not take care, taking care of myself. Yeah, totally. And that, that goes into, um, you know, I'd mentioned before you hit record that, you know, I have a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Um, and it's hard for me because I have two children and one of them is old enough to be experiencing kind of, well, my oldest is in high school at this yeah. point. So, you know, uh, they're dealing with a lot of the social anxiety and, you know, just the social dynamics of being a teenager. It's horrible, you yeah. know, and it's, it's kind of, I don't know, maybe it's not worse, but it's different from when I was yeah. in school. Um, but I think the, the point that I'm trying to make is that, you know, the anxiety is real for my child as well. And it's hard for me to be able to, uh, kind of help them through it because I'm still dealing sure. with it with my own right. problems, you know? Yeah. So I can kind of, you know, uh, share the advice that I'm given and kind of share what I've learned so yeah. far, but it's, it can only help to a certain point because right. I'm like still dealing with it, right. you know, and I'm still trying to manage it, you know? Right. Uh, and you know, it's like with everything, what works for me isn't going to work for everyone. And, yeah. and I'm trying to remember that just because they're my children doesn't mean that they behave or think the same way as I do. You right. know, they have kind of a similar way of, of sure. working through their, their problems, but they're their own unique individuals. Right. You know? And I, it's hard as a parent to remember that, but I think that's key at this point in our lives to kind of raise someone in this environment that we live in, yeah. you know, um, just be totally honest and open about it. But, you know, also realize that you can't always help someone with their problems, even if it's similar issues, you yeah. know, because you're at a different stage, you yeah. know, be it further along or, you know, far right. behind where they are. You know? yeah. So that, I think that's really hard for people sometimes, you know, yeah. they just want to help so much that they forget for sure. that, you know, not everyone can be dealt with in the same manner. You know? For sure. Yeah, God, I've, I've thought about that a lot in the last, you know, decade or so. Because mm. we're, I mean, we're roughly the same age and, we, you know, I don't have any kids myself, but most of my friends and peers have kids and a lot of them are high school age mm. or you know just graduated and i'm like i can't even imagine being a teenager during yeah. like social media because it's like you know yeah there was bullying in high school but like mm. once i got home for the day like i didn't have to deal with that stuff yeah, yeah and it's it's 20 it's literally can be 24 7 i mean honestly like just dealing with that last night i mean you know yeah. sitting from six o'clock to after the the podcast that I did last night, yeah. uh, just like kind of turn off the computer. And then all of a sudden was in a conversation yeah. with my teenager about, you know, about three and a half hours, just trying to help, you know, them yeah. cope with what was going on. And it's, a, it's, it's literally because they have constant connection via social media or just via text. Yeah. Um, and now there's like a thing where they're sharing 
the voice memos back yeah. and forth instead of actually calling each other and having a, a conversation right. even via phone right it's like they're not doing that anymore it's like you know via exchange you yeah. know so there's no back and forth it's just here's my viewpoint and all you can do is kind of you know lash out with your own viewpoint and there's no inter right. exchange right. of information you know yeah. And it's really hard to convince my teenager that that might actually be contributing to the issue. You know? Right. Um, but then on top of that, it's the whole social media aspect of it, which is a whole nother bag of problems, you know? Yeah. And I'm trying not to be like that typical old person, like, oh, you should stay off of the internet, sure. you know? But it's really, it's like, I can see firsthand being a parent and actually trying to be as, um, as kind of, uh, allowing as I can be with this stuff. Like I don't want to bar too much for my children because I know from experience, the harder you push back on something, the more they want to do it. Sure. But in a way it's like, you kind of have to regulate, navigate that whole world. And it's hard because I didn't grow up with it. Right. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a, you know, mind fuck. Yeah. Oh, I can only (laughs) imagine. I mean, my hat's off to you because I, uh, like I said, I have the luxury. I don't have kids, so yeah. I, I get to continue to live my life selfishly. Mm-hmm. But it's not like, you know, I've got I got three brothers, and uh, they've got eight kids between them. Mm-hmm. And then, but I also have three stepsisters, and there's nine kids with them. To, yeah. So it's seventeen altogether. Big so family, it's like, yeah. It's. Uh, I have one stepsister who doesn't have any kids, and we we kind of commiserate it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, we made the right choice. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for us, do you know what right, I mean? Sure, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, yeah. Yeah, I always say that. I mean, and people might hate on me for this, but I really like. I think my kids have turned out great. Yeah. Um, but just the fact that I'm a parent and I'm responsible for other human beings kind of kills me. Like, sure, that's that's the part of parenting that I didn't think about it all sure. you know it was very much when we started the process of having children it was like oh let's see what happens and like right. let's experience this aspect of life and right. we in a way didn't give it too much thought right. you know as far as like you know what's going on in the world or what we feel is happening you know which is weird because again with media in general we right. have a skewed aspect of what's going on in the world i mean there's a lot of bullshit that's going on yeah um, but like, you know, I'm really interested in, I'm, well, I say I'm really interested, but to the point where I don't know much about it, yeah. uh, but like, you know, statistics, you know, it's just, we actually live in the safest time and you right. hear people say that, but then it's like, just look at the news. It's not safe, right. you know? So it's really it, like the whole thing is just, it fucks with you so sure, hard, you know? Sure. And then having to sift through all that information and kind of be critical with your thinking and then transfer that over into your kids who are going through different experiences than you could ever imagine. Right. It's, it, it's like, <laughs> I can't, I, I would imagine it makes your heads, but well, I think about it like, you know, just, just in the last three years, just thinking about like all the crazy shit that's gone on, like mm-hmm. the pandemic and then everything that was going on through that. And I was yeah. like, it feels like the craziest time in my lifetime, but then I was like, but is it, or is it just, we're more aware of it because we have the 24 hour, seven days a week news cycle. And, and also everything's an algorithm that's Mm -hmm. catered to what you're already looking at. So like, if you're looking at doom and gloom shit, you're going to continue, you're going to continue to see that. 
Um, and th that's, I think, what I, I think uh, may be a really hard barrier for children now, especially children who are of, you know, the age, like teenagers and, yeah. and, you know, in their early 20s and they're getting all this. And it, it's like no wonder that, you know, there is, you know, what I consider an, like an anxiety epidemic, sure. you know. Um, because it's like, how can you sift through all this stuff, you know, and, and figure out what's real and what's not? Because, yeah. you know, growing up as a kid, you know, at least from what I saw, it's like they're, this stuff is just entertainment. It starts off at an, as entertainment, right. but then they don't realize how the, you know, how the coding works and how it can affect you, you right. know, if you're not mindful of it. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard to try and convince them of that, sure. you know? Well, especially you start getting are, into, they think that you're a conspiracy theorist, you right. know what I mean? Uh, well, so, their brains are still developing at that yeah. point too. So yeah, it's yeah, definitely having like a real, real impact. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to, I mean, and that's the thing. So that's where we are now with, with, you know, the internet age, I guess. Right. Yeah. But before that, like I learned a lot in my teenage years, I, I consider like rock and roll and heavy metal and punk rock to be kind of how I was raised in a way. Sure. Um, yeah. And with, without going too much into my family background, I mean, I think, you know, I took a lot of things that I, would hear, that I was hearing in songs and transferring that into real life. Yeah. And so like I grew up on hair metal and stuff and mm -hmm. it's very sexist and, you know, that sort of thing. And, yeah. And, you know, I grew up on that. So it, it was kind of normal for me, yeah. you know, to expect that out of life, you right. know, and then getting older and s starting to kind of be more aware, aware of, you know, social dynamics and, you know, how this music could affect other people's lives in a negative way. Right. Um, it was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I lived that lifestyle for so long sure. and didn't even realize or didn't even occur to me that there could be aspects of it that really detrimental, you yeah. know, yeah. to the way that I presented myself or, you know, interacted with other people, you know, I don't think you really fully are aware of that. Yeah. Um, when you're that age. Oh, for right? sure. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that I just had rock and roll to contend with and yeah. they have the whole world because that's the, we live with complete information, you know, right. bad and good, you right. know, so it's it's really difficult to navigate that space, you know. Yeah, no, I. Uh, <laughs> it's funny, I, you know, I grew up and like when I was like junior high, beginning of high school, like to me the coolest dude on the planet was Nikki Six, and now, oh dude, Motley Crue is my favorite. <laughs> yeah, it was funny because I asked Adam uh, when I had him on the podcast like, mm. a month and a half ago. I was like, "What's your take on the the Mick Mars thing?" Mm. And it's like. Um, Cause I still like, even, <clears throat> even though I know like they're playing with backing tapes and stuff, mm -hmm. I'm just like, particularly like the first five albums, I'm like, oh, that was, that was great. And like, yeah. that's sort of like untouchable. Like I just look at what they're doing now as I was like, well, you know, it's, 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 it's guys, you know, keeping the lights on. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, yeah, so my, I mean, that's, that's one of the top bands that yeah. I'm, referring to of that time period was I was a huge Motley Crue fan. Um, nowadays, not so much because yeah. of the things that I just you know, kind of referred to. But um, yeah, I mean, all through Dr. Feelgood, I was like a super fan, yeah. you know, and, but that was the transition for me between um, like, that was my, you know, first 
band that I absolutely loved, you yeah. know, even before getting into classic rock and stuff, it was Motley Crue, everything, you know, yeah. I wanted to be Tommy Lee. That's why I play drums, you yeah. know, essentially, you know, yeah. or that's where it started, you know, this, the spark. And, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Cause you know, you start to realize kind of growing up who these people are and I don't want to start a shit storm with sure, six, sure. you know, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's weird to think about because they were my idols for right. a long period of time yeah. in a very uh, kind of, um, oh, I just had the word, but I forgot it. Kind of like as I was growing up and, and developing, you, yeah. Know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, and then the thing that broke me for Motley Crue is that I went to go see them with Aerosmith. They were yeah. opening for Aerosmith. And this was like way later. I was probably in my mid twenties. Yeah. I forget when they played with Aerosmith, but it was in, in the Boston area, Mansfield. Yeah. And I remember just being so bummed out by their, just what they were doing on stage. Sure. Like, and I think this was pre-backing tracks. You know, they were still, I think, technically able to play. Right. And, you know, Mick Mars actually was probably the best member of the band. Sure. So I'm kind of like in Mick's camp, but yeah. not really because I don't give a fuck at right. this point. Right. But, um, if I had to choose sides just as a 14 year old metalhead, I'd, yeah. you know, pick him, but, sure. uh, but yeah, it's, it's weird. Cause I saw that show and I was just blown away by how bad it was, right. you know? And it just, it really kind of fucking knocked them off of the mountain for me. Sure. You know? And then I, and then right after that Aerosmith comes on and just annihilates, Blue, you know, right. they were great. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, that's one band. I mean, I don't know about these days. I know they're doing like a reunion thing but, sure. or the last tour or yeah, whatever, yeah. but without Joey Kramer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, he was, you know, playing when I saw them, you know, definitely, uh, but watching them play, I was like, okay, this is what a real band does. Sure. You know, sure. and they were at that point, I think in their, you know, mid to late forties, maybe even fifties. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, so it was, the the contrast was so stark. Sure, sure. <laughs> and from that point on, I I couldn't take Motley Crue seriously anymore. You know, I had an experience, God, probably fifteen years ago. Because um, for a while, I did security at the Hampton Beach Casino Ballroom, mm. and Vince Neil played there one summer. You know, not Motley Crue, just Vince mm-hmm. Neil solo, but his set consisted solely of Motley Crue songs. Of and course, like, yeah. I'm helping with load in and setting stuff up on stage, and then like one of the one of his crew is taping stuff down and I'm like, what is that? And I look and I'm like, it's the lyrics to girls, girls, girls. And this oh, is like, yeah, yeah. you know, this is like 2006, 2007. And I'm like, like dude, you've got I'm plenty a, of time. I'm not even in Motley <laughs> Crue. And yeah. I know, the, like, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, how do you, and like, it's not like those are tough lyrics. Yeah. How do you not? Know? Like I could probably sing that whole song in my sleep. Yeah. Like in a dream, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's funny. Cause like the first time I drove through the Southwest, like on, I was on like a 16 day road trip moving to Arizona. And like, I drove past, like, I was like, Oh, that's, that's one of the strip clubs that's name checked in yep. girls, girls, girls. Oh, there's another one. There's another one. I was yeah, like, yeah. I was like, what a weird thing to like, you know, commit to, to a song for mm. all eternity. It's just like, yeah. But I mean, at that time, I mean, that, that's what it was the epitome was of the awesome. Shit, you know, yeah. I mean, they were living the sunset strip life, you mm-hmm. know, and at that time it was generally acceptable. Sure. You know? And I like by no means a condoning it, but right. I mean, that's just what it was. Right. You know? And that, I, I do think that people um, tend to overlook the time period in which things happen. Sure. You know? 
um, and kind of account for that. You know, like I just finished reading um, uh, Brave New World yeah. by uh, Huxley. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have issues with that book and I can see why. Yeah. But I mean, the fucking book was written years, like decades ago, right. you know, when, you know, and at that time period, to me, at least, it seems like, you know, maybe he was a little forward thinking or at least, yeah. you know, uh, against his peers, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there might be things that are offensive these days right. in some of these books or some of these records or whatever, yeah. like movies, you know, entertainment in general, because it's so much in the public eye yeah. uh, that I think people are are you know, taking that stuff and putting it into today's context without yeah. kind of realizing that it was done at a totally different time with different mentalities, yeah. you know? And the key, I think, is to understand that, be aware of it, and kind of learn from it and, yeah. you know, progress from that point, you know, instead of just fucking getting rid of everything. It, yeah. It's just as bad as, like, book burning back oh, you know, sure. in, in World War II and all that stuff, you know? It's like, well... You need to learn from this stuff and move on, but yeah. just don't shove it under the table. You yeah. know, you need that history to have something to look back onto and be like, "No, that's wrong." Yeah, you know. But yeah. if you don't have that, then it disappears, and you could start redoing all these mistakes. You yeah. know. So, well, it's tough with you know writers or entertainers who are not here anymore. Mm. You know, particularly stuff that was made. 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago to compare it with the morals of today, you know, because as a species, we have to continuously progress and evolve our thinking and taking something that was a snapshot of the time and comparing it to today's standards. Of course, it's not going to be up to today's standards. And I think with people who are still making music, you can be like, okay, have they progressed from that point? Are they, you know, um, I mean, I lucky, I feel lucky that I'm old enough that Twitter wasn't a thing when I was in high school because, yeah. like, I was an ignorant idiot when mm -hmm. I was 18 years old, and I'm sure I would have put a lot of stuff out there that would be coming back to bite me in the oh, ass yeah. now. <laughs> but I also like to think that I'm a more enlightened, compassionate person than yeah. I was 25 years ago. And I think people need to remember that people can learn yeah. from their mistakes, mm -hmm. especially that's how you learn, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the only way is to make mistakes and be told, no, you're, you're being an asshole now, right. you know? And that's how you progress if you are aware of it and you let it to happen. I mean, yeah. it's it's very difficult to know that you're wrong or right. to kind of consider that you may be in the wrong, you right. know. And I don't think a lot of people do that, yeah. you know, unfortunately, you know. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I might, you know, even in doing all this press, I, I get nervous because a lot of the time I get kind of in the flow of conversation. Yeah. And you sometimes you may say a wrong word or a wrong sentence or whatever the fuck it may be, and then you've offended someone, you know? And it's like, well, okay, feel free to point that out. And at least I know from my perspective and my own, you know, well-being, I know that I'll at least consider what you have to say. Yeah. And if I'm being an asshole, I'd like to think that, you know, I, I can come to terms with that, sure. you know? But uh, I think a lot of people kind of find their, their line... And they just stick to it no matter what. Yep. Even if maybe even they know that they're wrong, they're just like, nope, I said this I said and I'm going to stick by it. Yep. You know? I think that kind of mentality sucks. Yeah. You know? I, uh, I always grew up thinking that like punk rock, not so much as a music, but like uh, a mentality was like not accepting what you're told, like questioning mm -hmm. everything and coming up with your own decisions. Right. So for me, 
like a huge thing 25 years ago. And like some people roll their eyes when I say this, but like a huge, like one of the most important punk rock songs was Social Distortion's I Was Wrong, yeah. which is just like, it was like, a, especially for that dude at that time mm. to like not only admit it, but make a song about it yeah. and be like, hey, some of the shit that like I grew up and like was the pillar of what I believe. It's not cool. Yep. It, you got to think about it. And like, I was like, yeah, that's like learn from shit and move on if it's not, you know, what you stand by. Anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's it's good to be able to talk about that because, you know, a lot of people can take things that happen 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or however long it is. And they still hold you to that. And yeah. it's like, well, I, like I'm decades older now. I right. could be thinking way differently, you know, so it's. You know, it's really good to be aware. And I think a lot of people are on autopilot, unfortunately. Yeah. You know? And that's the thing. So um, my, you know, kind of response to growing up with punk rock and that mentality, I totally subscribe to that as well. But then if you take it from a different perspective and from kind of the opposite side of that, yeah. well, then I'm not going to do what you like. I'm not going to uh, kind of subvert society and all this shit, you know, because... Right. There are downsides to that, you know? Uh, It's just you need to be kind of intelligent with how you carry yourself, you know? And sometimes that's not always easy, but own up to it, you know? And kind of be willing and flexible enough to kind of change your opinions and your attitudes about things, you know? And, yeah, hopefully I can kind of instill that in my kids. But I think they might be a little bit too young still. Sure. Well, I think, I don't know, me... I was, I was raised, I was a pastor's kid. I was mm-hmm. raised very religious. And so I was raised in the church as well. I got you. So <laughs> I very much like rejected that. And it's yeah. funny now the stuff that I've actually like come around to being like, Oh no, no, I do believe in this. And there's certain mm-hmm. things that I don't believe in for yeah. sure. And you know, I know my mom uh, probably wishes I, I still went to church with her and stuff right. like that. But you know, she'll make comments about like, you know, me, you know, reaching out and helping out people and stuff like that. And I was mm-hmm. like, she's like, where'd you learn that? I'm like, I learned that from you. And right. Like you maybe were coming from it because you were told, you know, yeah, like whatever. golden rule. And all yeah. That. But I was like, deep down because you're a good person. Like I know plenty of right. people in the church who aren't good people who, exactly. who don't live that way. But I was just like, so I was like, I feel like the, the crux of what you were trying to instill in me made it through despite my best efforts. Yeah. Right. You know? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's in, you know, I come from a background that's very different from my wife's, yeah. uh, for instance, and she has a very positive relationship with the church, but not so much in a religious sort of way, Yeah, but it's because where she's from, the church really was a community sort of thing. And that community helped each other kind of, you yeah. know, uh, live through some really strong, tough times, you yeah. know, um, and so for her, the church represents, you know, a positive community right. sort of thing where everyone helps out each other. And that's the great part of the church. Yeah. You know? But the way I came up and, and my viewpoint as a whole for, I guess, religion uh, is very detrimental because I see all the downsides of it. You know, yeah. all the wars, all the animosity, all the people not being able to come to terms with you with each other and work together on actually bettering the human race as opposed to their particular religion, you know? Um, so that stuff's really like, it doesn't sit well with me and it's because of my personal, 
experience growing up going to church school, essentially, right. you know, right. uh, you know, I was so my grandparents were Protestant um, and, you know, as a kid, I would go with them to church, you yeah. know, but there. So I grew up in Lawrence, Mass, and, and there is a big uh, Puerto Rican, um, you know, uh, group there. Uh, and that's, you know, my family, my great grandparents are Puerto Rican. And so they would bring me to these churches and it was totally like very positive, lots of song and dance. Yeah. I think that's maybe part of, you know, where I come from as a musician, very positive experience, but they were of that, you know, community sort of spirit, right. you know, and then growing up through school, I had a lot of friends who went to Catholic school and I mean, I don't want to get into it, but that's. <laughs> A big no-no for sure, me. Sure. <laughs> big red flag, that yeah. whole side of religion. Uh, and then on top of that, I ended up going to a Baptist school okay. for probably about five or six years, you know. And one, it's funny enough to draw the, the line there is that uh, one of the songs, they did the whole auditorium thing where they did a sermon in the middle of the school day for the children, you know, right. trying to convince them to believe in God. Two stories of that. But the, the one uh, is that the pastor brought up on the stage a little boombox and he was like, this is the music of the devil classic. Right. Yeah. And he plays fucking Motley Crue, yep. you know, I'm like, but my uncle listens to this. He just gave me the cassette tape, right. you know, like, but my uncle's cool, you know? Like, yeah. so that was like the, one of the first moments where I was like, I don't know if I can get with this shit, right. you know? And then the other moment was that they had these like ISO booths, you know, like a, a sound booth, you know, right. soundproof booth. And I was told at, I think I was probably like six or seven, somewhere around there, to go sit in this ISO booth alone yeah. and listen for the voice of God. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, like, I'm like, I don't hear nothing, man. <laughs> you know, so it's like I started picking up on these little bits of pieces where it's like, I don't know, this kind of seems like bullshit. You right. know? Um, but as an adult, I can definitely see the positive sides of a lot of aspects of religion. Yeah. But yeah. I think the way that it's it's um, it's organized and ran is is pretty detrimental, yeah. you know. Um, so I don't know, and I, I I'm not I can't I don't I wouldn't call myself an atheist so much, but yeah. I I don't believe in like a god or a higher power or something like that, you know. Yeah. So it's hard for me to take those types of religions seriously. Sure, you know, I kind of ascribe to you know taking bits of pieces that make sense out of philosophy yeah and those types of things you know that's that side of spirituality sure know? so i don't know it's religion is a tough subject for sure me, you know without trying to piss anyone off you know i'm just like i can't get with it you know i um i used to i used to tell a story uh you know i do stand-up comedy from time to time and i used to tell a story on stage it was a true story was because i was raised religious i had to hide my cassettes mm. and then one day my mom found my I think it was the Too Fast for Love album yeah. which on the inside the cassette they're all gathered around a pentagram and yep. like cantaloupers <laughs> and so my mom made me burn it on the barbecue like our, outside oh, man, on our yeah. deck but she's like there's a pentagram in here you've invited the devil into our house and yeah. he's going to take over our lives and our souls and I was like Really? Motley yeah. Crue is awesome. Yeah, it sounds cool. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, wow, that's just like cemented. You know, when I lived in Arizona, I, I had a record store. And, you know, my mom at one point was like, you know, what, you know, do 
you ever think you're going to get over like this obsession with music? And yeah, I was right. like, no, like if you had let it be like a normal junior high obsession, mm. I probably would have been a phase, but I was like, yeah, be, you know, that whole pushback thing. I was just yeah. like, Oh no, this was like the, the building blocks of like what matters to me. You yeah. Know? I mean, yeah, I had the same kind of similar experience. I mean, I, you know, growing up as a teenager, all I wanted to do is play drums with my friends, you know? And, you know, drums are a hard instrument to begin with because they're sure. really loud. And if you have them in the basement of your house, like your parents are going to get pissed. You right. Know? Luckily, my grandparents were okay with it. And that's where I eventually ended up with my drumming. But yeah, uh, yeah I think uh, it was the, I would get in trouble a lot uh, again because I was a problem child and I recognized that. Yeah. Um, but because of that, I got grounded a lot. And sure. I mean, it was a good experience now because now I know it doesn't work for my own children. Yeah. Like it's kind of a, a silly response. You know, yeah. it's like that's just going to make them want to do the things that they want to do more. Right. You know, that whole thing. And so that definitely made me like kind of like you said, cemented the deal for me as far as playing drums and yeah. music. Like I would skip out, you know, of school. I would, you know, skip out at night from the house so yeah. I could just so I could go play music. Yeah. And if it had been easier for me, I mean, who knows what would have happened? Sure. Right? You can't, you know, guess what could have happened. But it could have gone either way. I could have become a virtuoso, you know, or like right. gone to music school and stuff, right. or you know, gone the other way where it's like, oh, I did that, and now out of high school, I don't care about it, you know. Yeah. And now I'd rather just listen to it instead of perform it, you know, that sort of thing. So, I mean, who knows, right? But that definitely having that experience as a teenager drove me yeah. to really be like, you know, give the finger to my parents and be like, no, this is what I'm doing. Sure. And to be fair, my dad was like, he would be the one to drive me to the concerts that I was sure. doing at like the local ambats and stuff. And, you know, he was kind of a hard ass, like, you got to be out here on time. I don't want to be here five minutes late. Like, right. if you say you're going to be done at 10 o'clock, you got to be out here ready right. to go, you know? But I can understand that too, you know, because sure. being a parent and trying to work around your children's time schedules can be kind of frustrating. Sure. I can only uh, imagine. But yeah, so I had a kind of similar experience with that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think eventually, you know, especially maybe my mother came around to the fact that this is what I'm doing. Right. And it doesn't matter what you envisioned for me as a child like this is just how i am this right. is what's going to happen and i think she finally came to terms with that you know yeah um so you know I'm, I'm, that's why i try like you know you know one of my children's into sports i have a dislike for sports right. and the whole kind of community around it but that's because of my own experience in it right um which you know my kid finds you know, kind of positive for her. Sure. You know? So, you know, it depends on your experience. Yeah. It's all about experience, I guess, you know, for sure. you get told so many times that you can't do something. You're just like, no, I'm going to do that. I'm gonna you know? do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. You know? Yeah. So the whole, uh, I'm terrible at segues by the way. Mm. So we'll just dive into it. The yeah. Whole, whole, I'll take a drink. <laughs> uh, I reached out, um, again about it was you just put out the marlith mm. uh record yeah. self-titled record um uh was this something that was long gestating was this was this a, a covid baby i mean i know yeah i will sort of like preface it so the first two songs that Caven put out uh with with nate newton mm -hmm. in the band were um moonlight mile 
Yep. And uh, more, the Every Time I Die cover, yeah. which you play keys on both of those yeah. songs. Um, mm-hmm. Was that, did that inform that? Were you already working on the Marlith record? Like, how long has this been yeah, going on? Yeah, gestation period. Yeah. Because um, I had no idea until Adam mentioned it, and then, like, you know, a few weeks ago, whenever um, it got released, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, so it's... Uh, the actual project that is Marlith um, is kind of a relatively recent thing. Yeah. Um, I, and I'll go further back, but yeah. uh, the whole kind of um, beginning of that project happened during the, the pandemic. Yeah. A lot of time where I actually committed to um, exploring the use of synthesizers and electronics yeah. in music. Um, that really became a focus during the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, at the time that we were doing all that stuff with Caven, that's right when I was starting to start my acquisition of, you know, pieces of gear. Yeah. yeah. So that's, you know, what I had is what I used for those songs. And sure. it was an opportunity, you know, because it was, there were covers um, and they were more meant to be a fun, be something to do for us for during the pandemic. Sure. And then also, you know, kind of, explore a little bit with what Caven has to offer yeah. you know, uh, in the form of covering someone else's music. And so we added some of this stuff. I mean, in the Every Time I Die song, there is, you know, it starts off with piano, ends with piano. and It's an acoustic piano on the original. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And But it's kind of slightly out of tune. It has a cool character to it. So I was like, oh, well, I can kind of do that with yeah. my synths, you yeah. know. And so I approached those guys and they were gracious enough to, you know, let me kind of experiment with that you yeah. know uh it was definitely uncomfortable for a little while because you know you know going back i mean i've kind of always had an interest in electronic music yeah but you know i hate to say it but you know attitudes back when i was coming up in the game so to speak yeah. uh it was really anti you were either in hardcore punk and rock and roll or you were you know some weirdo playing a lit you know techno right. and all this stuff you know and there was a clear divide there. Sure. And I didn't have enough balls to be like, well, I don't care. I'm going to do this anyways. Because right. I was so ingrained in in what we were doing as, as a band in Cape, sure. you know. Um, so it was really hard for me to kind of accept that part of me, yeah. to sound weird about it, you know. Um, but I mean, you know, one of my earliest musical memories is of, of listening to something and owning a piece of music was... Um, that uh, the uh, Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack. Yep. And in there is the theme song, Axel, Axel F. F. Yep. And it's all electronic. It's like, you know, uh, classic 80s type sure. sounds, you know, but uh, not heavy at all. But I remember mm-hmm. pretending to, you know, play all the notes and stuff yep. on like my bed posts and stuff, you yep. know. And I didn't know what the synthesizers were. I just thought the sounds were cool, you know. Um, so, you know, over the years, I mean, I've always had a passing interest in that stuff and then getting into a lot of, uh, prog rock and stuff and, you know, hearing sounds come from synthesizers and organs and things that weren't like strings or drums or, you know, something like that. Um, you know, like Rush was a big influence on me. Um, and it was just filled with synthesizers, you know? And then on top of that, like I get really into Genesis, um, 
you know, probably uh, in the antenna days of Caden. Yeah. Um, I got heavily into listening to Genesis, and a lot of that has synthesizers. And, of course, like Pink Floyd was always there. Yeah. Um, so there's all this, you know, precedent for using these instruments uh, within rock and roll, but it was always kind of that. It was always in prog rock or classic rock. Right. And, you know, where we were in metal and stuff like that, it wasn't so prevalent, right. you know. Um, so it took me a while to come to terms with, you know, kind of wanting to pursue that as something that I can actually make something of, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, growing up, I had toy Casios and stuff. But uh, so, you know, starting with the pandemic, uh, well, in antenna days, I also came across uh, one of our sound guys turned me on to a, 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 a DAW program that was its reason. And within reason, you can record a bunch of stuff, but it also has a bunch of pre, pre, um, like preloaded uh, soft synths and yep. stuff. So I kind of tinkered around with that while we were on the road for Antenna. Never really gave it too much stock. So long story short, after all that, it, it was always a passing interest, is, mm -hmm. I guess my point. And then coming up to you know, getting locked down in pandemic, um, I had started maybe the year previously to be like, you know, I have a little bit, like I have a couple hundred bucks that I have nothing to do with. Prior to that, I was really into, I, I got kind of heavily for about five or six years into uh, working on and riding motorcycles. Yeah. Um, but it didn't turn out to be such a passion for me that I wanted to pursue, quote unquote, for the rest of my life. Right. Um, I saw some dudes who were like, that was their passion. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, it's not really that. I started getting nervous on bikes. So I was like, it's just, it's not for me, you know? Sure. So I kind of got out of that. And with whatever kind of limited disposal income that I had, I was like, well, I'll just buy my first synthesizer, you know? Right. And it kind of snowballed from there, especially once the pandemic hit. And, uh, you know, I, we got off of, uh, two tours before that, and I had a little bit more disposable income than I had generally had before that. Yeah. So I was able to invest in like a handful of different pieces of gear, and one of those being an MPC synthesizer, um, sampler. And, uh, you know, I was like, well, I play drums. I'm just going to do this. So, you know, because like I said earlier, we're playing drums in your basement. It's hard to do whenever you feel like it. Sure. And because, you know, I... I also have ADHD, so it's like when I think of doing something, it immediately has to happen or it just doesn't get done. Sure. Yeah. And that's also been part of my problem through the years. It's like, you know, it's hard for me to, you know, kind of focus on doing things and, and kind of actually following through, yeah. through with things. And it's become easier in my adult age. But um, so I think, uh, you know, I was like, well, I want to be able to kind of go all in on music because I got, just got rid of like the whole motorcycle phase of my life. I hate sure. a lot of phase, but that's what it was. And so I just want to, and for, I keep diverging here or digressing, but it's what a conversation is. Yeah. I, for this stuff, like, you know, I don't talk about it much, so it's hard mm -hmm. for me to be clear about it. But so beyond the motorcycle thing, I was also, I can say that I was, you know, what I would consider clinically addicted to video games, you know, yeah. like I would log into video games, even though I had no real need to, wasn't fun. It was just filling that, you know, time where I didn't want to think. Yeah. It's occupying you know? your mind. Yeah. So that became my life for a very long time, probably 10 or 15 years. 
Um, and I wouldn't really do much except for cave and, and, you know, love those guys. Cause they kind of dragged me along. Yeah. We joke sometimes that I'm kind of like Bernie and weekend and Bernie, right. you know, like they're just, they keep pulling me through these things and I, I can't be thankful enough at this point in my life. You sure. Know? But, uh, so, you know, I, I decided to stop my addiction to video games. Um, and I stopped with the motorcycles. So to fill up that time, I, was all into music and I was like, I'm just going to explore music because I had never done that. You yeah. know, my career in music has always been with Caven or some other band that I was playing, Doom Riders, you know, yeah. it was always part of someone else's thing that I was trying to be a part of, you know, sure. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so with, you know, exploring the synths and stuff like that, it was very much my own thing. It was something that I could do at, you know, midnight or, you know, one o'clock in the morning when my kids were asleep and mm -hmm. my wife was asleep and I didn't have to bother anybody. Yeah. I didn't have to travel half hour to 45 minutes to the practice space to play drums. Yeah. Like I was like, I'm just going to sample my own drum set. So then I can feel not guilty about ripping someone else's off. Sure. You know? Cause you know, the whole idea with an MPC and sampling in general, well, from my standpoint mm -hmm. is like, you can dig in record, you go record digging and that's how hip hop does and drum and right. bass and all it's like you sample other artists' work. And while I have no real issue with that, it just didn't feel right for me. Sure. So I was like, well, I'm a drummer. I have no excuse to get my own fucking You have the skill already to create yeah. the beats. So I would go ahead and just kind of chop up my own drum beats mm. or sample my own drum hits, you know, and then use that, you know, and just tinker around with that. And I had just the MPC and one other, you know, keyboard. Um, and I would come up with certain things that I was like, oh, this is kind of fun, you know? Yeah. And then that, you know, over the, a number of years turned into like, oh, well, maybe I should pursue, you know, kind of, I keep doing this. I keep talking about it with my friends. Yeah. They're like, I tried not to talk about it so much because it's like, you know, the guy who always talks about doing things, but never actually gets things done. Yeah. You know? uh, and I didn't want to be that guy uh, or that person, I should say. Um, but so I was like, okay, well, I need to, you know, kind of try and make something, have some sort of, and I hate to word, use the word product, but, you know, a product of my labors, you right. know, um, not so much for making money, but just something that I can say, here you go, I did something, you know, and like everyone that I know, who that I play music with, they all do solo projects and sure. like that, that was always a cool idea to me, but I could never see myself, like I pick up a guitar and I can kind of pretend to play a scale or something, right. but I, I'm not proficient enough to sure. start my own rock and roll band or punk band or right. whatever. But I really started um, noticing that I could play keys um, in a way. I mean, I'm no virtuoso. I never take lessons, but it's, it's very, um, the way you play it, it's melody mixed with rhythm. Right. So I had already had those kind of skills built in, you yeah. know, I was like, Oh, I can kind of do this, you know? Um, well, I mean, piano is a percussion instrument. Yeah, yeah, and I never looked at it that way, yeah. you know. And then add on top of that, like all the crazy cool sounds that I I thought that I could sure. come up with, and you know, that's how it began. And then, so long story getting to the Marlith thing is that um, probably when I decided that all right, I'm going to pursue trying to get a small release. The idea was to do an EP, like four songs. Yeah, and that's actually why there's four kind of, I guess complete arranged songs like yeah. like pop songs basically they're pop arrangements right you know? um you know there's four songs on that record and then the rest are kind of ambient and or jammy pieces yeah. 
And that's because I was like, I'm just going to do four songs. And then once I kind of got the, the, the skeletons of those songs, I was like, oh, and I can add things in. Like a big inspiration was Old Man Gloom. Sure. And some of the earlier stuff where they would um, kind of go in between uh, these noisy ambient things yeah. and actual, actual quote unquote songs. Right. You know? um, so I was like, well, I can probably do that, you know? So I decided to, you know, commit to some sort of, you know, complete piece at the end. Yeah. Uh, and it probably took me, so not the whole pandemic, but probably a year and a half, two years of the pandemic um, to, you know, complete something. And it was completed at the end of the last year. So yeah. I guess in a way, it's slightly like a pandemic baby. Sure. I mean, I can't help but say that some of that, what we all experienced going through that, uh, it's in there. You know? There's a lot of angst and a lot of frustration and a lot of just feeling nervous about um, what was going on in the world. Yeah. You know? Um, and then a lot of the lyrics uh, came from, you know, kind of being anxious about world events that were happening at the same time and kind of spinning that with uh, kind of my early love of uh, fantasy. I read a lot of fantasy books, sure. sci-fi books. Yeah. Spinning it with that and D and D, like I played D and D as a kid. Marvelous you know? comes from. Yeah, yeah, so uh, you know, you picked up on that. So, I mean, the, it's easy to do. I mean, you type in Marlis and mm. Google it, everything is D and D, you know. Um, but I mean, I spent you know a good bulk of my teenage years playing D and D with the local kids, you know. Yeah. And nowadays, I I don't really you know find the need for to do that, but yeah. it's a part of me, and sure. you know what I think of, and it kind of in a weird way having the kind of vibe that Marlith is kind of also based on D and D. Sure. It kind of gave me the, um, I guess the freedom to write almost as a protagonist, yeah. you know, um, and not feel so bad about it because, so here's my thing. This is the really nervous thing for me yeah. with releasing this record is that a lot of the lyric content could potentially be, uh, considered, you know, of me kind of condoning certain things like sure. violence and war and stuff like that. But it's actually written from Marlis perspective. Yeah. It's a character. Yeah. So, you know, I guess if you want to get into the background of the name and the idea behind that Marlith in D and D is kind of like a general of hell. Right. Um, and a really powerful demon. And the idea is that she kind of commands hell's armies, right. you know, and, and that's why there's a lot of reference to, kind of um you know kind of spilling over into our world and, yeah. and kind of taking over that way so it's very much a lot of the lyrics are written from the perspective of demons taking over humans yeah. and you know what results from that you know um but i think uh you know from there i was able to kind of spin in some real world events or uh you know fears um because a lot of it can draw on, you know, what's happening in reality. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I'm making much sense, but. Um, no, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of those lyrics are very nervous to me because I don't want people to get the wrong impression. Like I'm condoning certain things, but a lot of it is written from the perspective of, of the character of Marlis, yeah. like a general of hell trying to enslave the yeah. human race, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I know that there's, there's a lot of issues with certain words, but 
you know, it is what it is. And my intent isn't evil, sure. <laughs> you know? So that's what I kind of tell myself I need to relax about. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think like, you know, you look like lyrics from Slayer or, you know, even ministry to go with like yeah. electronic, like, you know, um, like I, I, I thought of like cannibal corpse and yeah. like a lot of these death metal bands. Yeah. I mean, it's not death metal, but no. Um, well, it's funny. Like, um, I mean, it definitely has like reminiscent of Godflesh for sure. But I, I was listening to a lot of God. Yeah. <laughs> the biggest thing for me, which was like, and, and I will say just, you know, to do my, my fanboy moment for a second, like, Right now, it's actually like probably my contender for favorite record I've heard this year. Oh, cool! Yeah. Probably listen to it like we're still times. early. <laughs> well, I mean, we're almost halfway through the year, yeah, so. Yeah. But I mean, it's certainly like you know, I, I'm pretty positive it'll be at least in the top ten. But like, I appreciate that. I remember like Psalm sixty nine is one of my like all time favorite records. Yep. And but the last two songs, Corrosion and Grace, are kind mm. of like not songs so much more like soundscapes and yeah. i remember whenever it came out 92 93 like i'm like it's kind of like a refractory period from the onslaught of that mm-hmm. record and i was like it would really be cool to hear like a whole album of this kind of vibe right which i definitely get a lot of that from that so like i'm just like I- i've been digging on it a mm. lot i've been digging on it a lot yeah i mean i i really appreciate that it makes me feel better about the nervousness that I have. But so you bring up Psalm 69, and that was uh, definitely a key uh, kind of, um, you know, touching point mm. for this record. I mean, it's obvious, and it didn't start out that way. I didn't start out like I want to be ministry or something sure. like that, but I couldn't help but have that influence come yeah. out. Um, but so funnily enough, uh, or funny enough, <laughs> um, when I handed it off to James Plotkin for mastering, right. Um, I was like, the only reference that I have for sound is um, that song Scarecrow yeah. off of Psalm 69, because yeah. that was the closest thing that I could think of that I wanted my stuff to sound like, you yeah. know, and just, I remember having, I used to work a second shift job and uh, I would listen to that record just yeah. on my drives home, which was about 45 minutes from where I lived, just straight down the highway. And it was such like a just an experience to have at night driving oh, alone yeah. on the highway, you know? And so, you know, that record definitely, you know, has a strong influence on yeah. what I, how I approach making music with electronics, I guess, you yeah. know, I mean, a lot of that is guitar based too, but you know, it's undeniable yeah. that stuff, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, going back to the lyrics, it's like, you know, there's some questionable stuff all throughout, you know, ministry, even nine inch nails, Sure. Uh, a lot of metal that we all listen to, like, yeah. I think it's it has a lot to do with context and the intent behind it, you yeah. know. Um, so, you know, I just that's one thing that I get nervous about. I just yeah. hope people don't get the wrong impression of it. No, I and, and I mean, I don't think anyone's going to take it and be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> Jr. Cajun's got, got yeah, some crazy nefarious ideas, plans, right? But yeah, no, it's a it's a great record. Um, are you? Are there any plans to do a physical release at some point? Uh, I mean, I, I would ultimately like to, but right now it's a question of money. Sure. You know, I mean, it's self-released. Um, I'm trying to keep costs low. Sure. Which is why right now it's just digital yeah. release only. Um, 
I do have, you know, kind of fancies of releasing it on cassette and vinyl. Yeah. But the reality of the situation, that stuff costs a lot of money. Right. And I don't have a label backing me up, which yeah. is totally fine. Yeah. You know? It's not, you know, it wasn't ever the idea to, you know, kind of pursue doing things sure. on a label. Because one of the things that I'm still kind of on shaky ground of is playing live, you know. Yeah. I don't know how I would do it because the music itself is so pieced together. Right. Like a lot of it's not playing live. You right. Know? It's not a performance really. It's it's really just a, an assembly of sorts. You sure. Know? Um, you know, a lot of the keyboard riffs and stuff that is played in live, but, you know, the bulk of the material is programmed in and sequenced. And yeah. Stuff. Um, except for some of the ambient stuff or the noisy jammy stuff, yeah. that's all live. But like I could never really rec re recreate that yeah. live and I don't know how to approach that. Sure. Um, so that, and to me, that goes hand in hand. Like if you're going to have physical product for sale, if you will, in a way you kind of have to push it by yeah, playing live, you yeah. know? And so I'm not sure of that aspect sure. of it. So I don't know how to bridge it. You know, there is the, the part of me where it's like, you know, well, people yeah. might, may buy it anyways, regardless. Sure. But it, it, I guess just for my background, it doesn't sure. feel right to me, you know, it's, in a way. It's interesting because, like, I, like, the third or fourth time that I listened to it, I was like, I could, because I, I wondered about if you were going to do some sort of live presentation, and obviously it would have to be different than how the record was done, mm -hmm. but I was like, I could totally see this with, like, with, like, Zombie, for instance, mm. who happened to be labeled made some yeah, yeah. now. Right. Yeah, which, I mean, and I've seen those guys live, and it's just two guys live, and a lot yeah. of it is pre-programmed, but it is also, you know, and the same thing with, you know, to bring it all back to where we're at right now, you know, uh, Alex Garcia Rivera, uh, Chrome Over Brass, which the only thing that's live when he plays live is the drums, right. but it's, it's a captivating show, so. Yeah, and that's the thing, like, I know, so... It, you know, in playing shows with various artists recently who are doing similar things with a lot of electronics and sequences and um, stuff like that, and like pre-recorded tracks and all that, um, the thing that holds me back is because I grew up, you know, the, the live experience of seeing musicians play live is so ingrained in me that yeah. that's kind of what I want to see. Yeah. So I don't fault anyone for how they present their music. Sure. But in seeing a lot of these different um, people go up and perform, it's like I always come away with like, oh, well, I'm missing this, and this yeah. is what I want to take yeah. for my own thing. And so there are ideas of how I want to do that. Like, if I were to do it, I wouldn't want to get up there as a solo artist yeah. and kind of just play my electronic gear. Because yeah. you kind of, there's a disconnect from what you're doing and what people are hearing. You know? yeah. um, so... You know, a big thing is that, you know, I would like to see these other artists maybe bring out a drummer, you right. know, and a lot of them transitioning into adding a drummer to their live act, you know, like uh, Use Code did the yeah. same thing, you know, for a while it was just the two of them and then they eventually added on a drummer, which I think is great, you know, yeah. um, but so I think that's the next piece of the puzzle if I were to pursue doing a live sort of sure. thing for Marlis, but and I have an idea of who I want to ask, but cool. Uh, yeah, it's a. But I'm not at the stage where I'm like, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. Yeah. So it's hard for me to ask anybody to join and do anything because I don't really know what it is that I'm sure. trying to do. You sure. Know? So that's the really hard part. Like my whole goal was just to finish 
a record and release it. Yeah. And now I'm here and people are asking for, you know, vinyl release sure. and live shows. I'm like, fuck, I didn't even think of that. You know, like, I mean, it, it's been there. Now. Yeah. I mean, those thoughts have been there, but it's yeah. always been something like I told myself it kind of held me back from finalizing what I was doing. Cause yeah. I was like, well, how am I going to do this live? And that was always a nagging thought. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not going to do this live, you know? And I convinced myself that yeah. it's just going to do, just going to be a project that I release, um, as audio yeah. essentially. And now it's like, well, okay. Now that I've done that and I've reached that goal now, it's like, okay, well no, it no. feels wrong to jump into another project. Like, how am I going to do this? And then, of course, I get comments from the guys in Cave and like, you got to figure out how to do this live. And yeah. I'm like, fuck, now the pressure's on, you know? Sure, sure. And now I can't get rid of that thought. So sure. it's probably coming, but there's no real plans yet. Sure. I haven't gotten in the room with anybody else to do this. And I'd be nervous to do so, even if they were my friends. You know, right. it's a really, this whole experience has been very vulnerable for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, so even, you know, it, accounting for the fact that I've been doing it for so long, but sure. it's always been with my friends, you yeah. know? So it's, uh, if I were to do something live, it would have to be with my friends. Sure. <laughs> for sure. Uh, so, sense. you know, that the idea is there, but there's no concrete plans, yeah. you know, for both yeah. aspects of that. Well, as someone who's been, uh, a fan of what you've done in Caven, um, like I was like, you know, I had a little bit like of an inclination of what it was going to sound like from talking to Adam beforehand, mm. but um, uh, it's definitely of merit. Like, it's it's a great record, mm. and like, not I'm not like I really like this because the drummer from Caven made this. Yeah, yeah. I'm like I dig it. Like, it's it's got merit. You definitely should pursue it. Like, you know, from an outsider's, you know, whatever my opinion's worth. But yeah. I'm yeah. Just saying, no, like, it's worth a lot. I yeah. mean, it's, I, I feel very humbled that, uh, you know, people actually seem to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't discredit that at all. Sure. It, that's kind of, you know, one of the things that it was unclear to me was like, am I going to release this? No one gives a fuck. Sure. Know? Sure. Um, or if people are going to, you know, be like, Oh, the drummer for Caveman released a new right. record. Let's check it out. You know, right. but it seems like actually, you know, people actually enjoy the music for what it is. Sure. You know? Um, and that's giving me a little bit of a confidence boost to, you know, pursue the ideas of playing live and yeah. releasing, you know, physical media and stuff yeah. like that. And, you know, kind of going into, you know, maybe further on that line, doing a second one, you know, yeah. that is the, the idea overall. Like I don't, like this is my kind of creative out, uh, outside of playing in Caven, right? Um, just because it also kind of teaches me what I can and can't do with this equipment that I can also potentially bring into the fold with Caven. You know, right. I mean that's also an aspect of me doing this. You know, sure. Um, so you know, it does give me a little bit of a confidence boost, and I really appreciate when people say that they like it. You yeah. know, um, so yeah, I mean it's nice to think that maybe I could get up there on stage and do it at one point, but sure. I, I have to be, I'm slow moving with my thoughts and ideas yeah. and it's going to take me a little bit of kind of considering all aspects. I'm like that type of thinker, you sure. know, like I got to really know what I'm doing in order to do it um, or have some sort of concrete goal in order to pursue something like that. You sure. Know? Um, and have kind of a good idea of how I want to do it, which is not the case right now. Sure. So, but that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, and it's funny, you know, um, again, touching on, you know, conversations I've had with Adam where his, you know, talking about his increased, like, confidence as a vocalist, mm. you know, um, you know, and part of that was, you know, playing in Nomad Stones, which you were also in, but, like, yeah. it was really, it's it's really cool hearing your vocals on this, and, like, mm. I was like, oh, cool, there's another, not, not just, like, artistic voice, but an actual voice in Caven, yeah. too, which, like, other than backing vocals, I, um, I don't think you've done any lead vocals on nope. It's always been backing tracks. Yeah. Um, but, and that's the thing, like, I have a hard time coming up with, like, vocal melodies and sure. stuff. Those guys are ace at that, you know? Sure. So they can tell me what to do, and I can kind of, mm -hmm. you know, get what they want. But, you know, for me, too, I was, like, always drawn to aggressive vocals. Um, and there's, I mean, you know, we could go down the list of, you know, inspiration for that. But, you know, it's, like, it's one thing that I knew that I could kind of, I had the... Uh, the kind of energy in myself yeah. to do something like yeah. that. And I did try. There is plenty of experiments that will, will never see the light of day where I'm trying to do melodic vocals yeah. or, you know, something like that. And it's just, I don't feel comfortable with it. Sure. But I know I can kind of pull off like an aggressive vocal sound, yeah. you know? Um, but even even the guys in cave that's the first time anyone's heard me do that. Yeah. Um, so even the guys at cave were a bit taken aback, but in a good way. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, so it's it's nice because it, it kind of again it gives me that push to be like all right seems like I'm not being a total asshole yeah <laughs> you know? no, so, no, no, no it was like I was definitely I was like whoa this is this is killer yeah, and it hurt I mean oh, doing vocals I can like, imagine I never do anything I like that you know? so it's I spent some time in the practice space and actually uh, that track flesh was done in the back of my car in the in the parking lot of the mall you know yeah. um, so it's. Like, I don't have a habit of singing aggressive vocals, sure. so it's kind of cool how it came out. I'm, like, kind of, you know, without harping, you know, myself up, it's kind of like I'm kind of impressed with myself. Sure. You know? Like, sure. I didn't know I could do that, sure. you know? Um, so, you know, it's in a way, it's it's uh, it's kind of pushing me to pursue it more. So it's nice to hear that type of stuff. Oh, know? yeah, for sure. Have you, uh, flipping it the other way, um have you ever heard the ministry's uh, bridge school performance where they played acoustic? No, it was it, like, Oh my God. Check it check out. That out. Yeah. It's mostly covers. Yeah. Like their version of friend of the devil is great, but it's like weird hearing Al sing. Like he actually has a really good voice. And really? It's like, yeah. Holy shit. Like, cause it doesn't sound like the same band at all. Like I used to way back when everyone had CD players in their car, I used to make friends mixes all the time. I yeah. make like a ministry mix. I always slip that on there. Oh, uh, like, you'll, you'll have like, to send me a link. Yeah, yeah, you know? it's fucking cool. But I would love to hear that. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, again, ministry is great. Yeah. Um, there's some, you know, there's ups and downs. Uh, for but, sure. you know, I'm sure that my, what I consider low moments for that band are someone else's high moments. Sure, sure. So I can't fault anybody, you know. Uh, but, like, I recently went with Steve with Steve um, to ministry at the yeah. House of Blues at maybe last year. Yeah. And it was such a cool show. You oh, know? But they didn't play half of what I wanted to hear, you sure. know? <laughs> so as a fan, I kind of came out disgruntled in a way, yeah. you know? But it I was cool seeing it. Like, their records, I kind of lost interest once Paul left the band. Yeah. But like, yeah, he, like... He was a big force. Yeah. For sure. And I feel like it was also, like, he tempered Al's... Yeah. Like it was a good yin and yang, mm -hmm. where like where it's just like Al full bore and 
I was just like, all right, I don't need the dude from Fear Factory. Like, yeah. You're already like the dude. Like, yeah. I'm like, you're already the scary guy in the mystery. I don't need another one of those dudes. Yeah, right. but, um, yeah I mean, so the last record that I really enjoyed. Actually, I like the last record that they put yeah. out, the most recent one. I don't know if I've heard the most um, recent one. Is that the one with the Statue of Liberty on the cover? Uh, is it? It's like really kind of 50s style with the blacked out or blanked out eyes. I think I've heard that one. It's pretty good. Yeah. Um, it's definitely like apocalypse and sure. doom and gloom, but yeah. I kind of enjoy that. Yeah. That's what my fucking record's about. Um, but uh, that record's pretty good. But before that, the last one that I really enjoyed listening to is Houses of Molay or yeah. Mole, yeah. House of the Mole, right? Yeah. But the way they spell it is Molay, Mole. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which I kept thinking because I have a song called More uh, uh, Morale. Yeah. And the way I keep saying it in my head is Morale. morale you know. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> but uh, you know, but all that Paul Barker stuff. Um, and I forget the other guy, but there was so Paul Barker is the bass player and the drummer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Will slash sequence. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, thank you. He those two played a huge role in most of the ministry that I, I sure. love. You know. So you know what he did when he when he left ministry. I'm not sure. He was REM's drummer. Which oh, I, was I did like hear such that. A, yeah. like, and he was great, but it was like yeah. such a weird thing to like, like such a juxtaposition. Yeah. And uh, yeah, because um, back in one of my former lives, I used to work for a music marketing company mm -hmm. back when that was a thing in the world. Yeah. And the founder of that, she used to work for Warner Brothers Records, and she was just like, She's like, oh, Bill Reiflin, what a sweet boy. And, yeah, yeah. You know, she's like, I helped kind of like... Well, they were part of the book club, right? Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Al's, Al's term for him, you yeah. know? I mean, that that's the thing. I think those two dudes in ministry had a heavy hand in shaping the sound of that band. For sure. With all the samples and the, and the, the sequencing of the drum parts and actually playing a lot of right. the instruments. And then, you know, of course... The whole spirit of ministry is Al, you know, and, right. and he brings that wild, chaotic side that I wish I had. Sure. You know? But I'm kind of glad I don't because it would be really terrible for my health, you sure. know, uh, and for the health of others around yeah, me. Everyone but, around you. Really yeah. <laughs> so I can appreciate Al as quote unquote Uncle Al, right. you know, as he's known for. Right. But I think those two dudes really um, shaped that band for a lot of what, you know, people love about sure. that band, you know? Sure. Um, so yeah, I, hats off to those two dudes too, you know, yeah. and that, that spurred me into looking up their background and what they did, uh, after that. And like, you know, some of the records that they helped produce and stuff. And it, there was a lot of interesting stuff, but nothing of the caliber of ministry, sure. in my opinion. You sure. Know? Um, so, but it, it's cool when you find little bits and pieces like that and you can kind of go down the rabbit holes on certain sure. people, you know? Yeah. So it's always interesting. Um, touch on what I know that. Time's a little bit of a factor for you, so we'll kind of wrap up. But touching on what... Uh, I got a little more time. All right. Um, you know, the last time I was in this room was... It was... It's funny because I remember, like, you know, a year into the pandemic where, like, a lot of people on social media were like, here's a poll, and you fill out your stuff. And it was, like, last live concert mm. you went, and I was like, oh, Nomad Stones in mm -hmm. Salem and... Uh, you know, um, yeah, we're in, currently in the green. Room. We're currently in the green room uh, of it used to be Opus. It used to be now Opus, is yeah. Dire Downstairs. Wolf Tavern. Yeah, um, and uh, was it? Um, you know, Chrome Over Brass played, but yep. also 
Labor Hex with yeah. Duncan Wilder Johnson on vocals because yeah, yeah. they had something going on that Yeah, that I, I think he might have been sick or something. Something like that. I don't really remember, yeah. to be honest. Um, and, uh, but, so you said that was actually the last Nomad Stones show. Yeah. Was that like so far or was that just like, what's going on with Nomad Stones? Is there it's anything like, going uh, on? One of those things, I think... Um, Everyone that I'm involved with musically has a hard time saying that this project is over. Sure. You know, because there could, we, we like to leave the doors open for yeah. things. Um, so with Nomad Stones, I think uh, that's still on the table, Yeah. but we haven't really gotten into the room. Sure. I think Adam's been working on demos, but I don't think it's, you know, specific to Nomad Stones. Sure. Um, so I know for, uh, you know, so we played that last show, uh, which was probably our best show too, which is nice. You yeah. Know? Um, and then after that, uh, shortly after the pandemic hit, and not only that, but at this right around the same period of time, our bass player Charlie moved out to the West Coast. Um, so it was kind of like so he was our second bass player. Right. Um, and it's kind of like you know we're the Spinal Tap with bass players, you know. Mm. Uh, but that's what it seems like anyways. But so he moved out to the West Coast, the pandemic hit. And then at the same time, Caven started becoming really active. Right. Um, you know, doing the two fall tours that we did prior to the pandemic. And then once the pandemic hit, we all collectively decided like, hey, we can only have like, you know, the bubble or the pod or whatever the right. people call them. Um, but we can only see a, a select few people. So why not be us? Right. And we have no other obligations that was kind of unheard of for a number of years, you know? Um, so no one was touring, no one was doing other projects. So we were like, let's just focus on Caden. And that's what, you know, produced Heavy Pendulum, yeah. you know? Um, so in that time, I think, uh, you know, No Man's Stones got put on the back burner. Um, and it's something that, you know, Adam and I have kind of, you know, here and there talked about, like, this would be cool if we, you know, did something like this. Yeah. Like when we hear different pieces of music or, you know, we each have a different idea of what the next Nomad Stones should sound like. Sure. Um, or an idea of like what might be cool for us to do, you know. It's still kind of there and it, yeah. it's it's um, it's an opportunity to do something out of the worlds of Cave-In and, you know, outside of the worlds of our, you know, individual um, side projects that are already kind of established, you know. Right that's still there as an option, yeah. I guess. Uh, so there's no plans for that. Um, but I certainly hope that we revisit it in some capacity. Yeah. Um, you know, and also like that was based on a lot of um, music that we were listening to at the time. Um, a lot of Devo, a lot of, um, well, I don't, I won't run down the list, but a lot of the music that we were, we were listening to at the time were informing that. And I think at the moment, um, you know, we're listening to and thinking about music in separate ways. Yeah. So I think when there are touchstone records or, you know, things that we're like kind of connect on, we're like, oh, we need to put this into the, you know, into the folder for sure. what we want to pursue, you know. Right. Um, but yeah, so it, it might come to pass that we do another Nomad Stones. I would love to. Yeah. And I think Adam would too, but yeah. we're just we want to, you know, have a good idea of what we want to do. Sure. You know, and that hasn't presented itself. Sure. Yet, so my, um, my suggestion, if there ever is a mm. Nomad Stones record continuing with the tradition of the first and second is 
you have to do another physical format. So because yeah. the first one was vinyl only, yep. second one was cassette only. So I'm thinking eight track only. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it could be. I, uh, you know, I I did the the Marlis record. It's not the the best mix ever, but. I'm learning a lot in the process, and yeah. I know that Adam has kind of stepped up his recording, home recording game. Yeah. Um, so we're both individually learning a lot sure. as far as capturing what we do. Yeah. Um, so I think that could only benefit yeah. what we do next, you know. And and maybe it's you know some crazy shit. Sure, know? sure. Um, but yeah, it's always like a cool project band that we got going on. Yeah, right now. for sure. I was uh, I was at a used record store yesterday up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, yeah. that I go to all the time. Bull Moose and uh, yeah, Bull Moose. Yeah. They had like a wall of like old cassettes and they had a bunch of A tracks and like I had to fight myself because they actually had Neil Young's Harvest on A track and I was like <laughs> and even now that I'm saying it, I'm like I should have fucking bought it. But bro. you don't really know what you're gonna get, right? Would it well, be cool to have that? It would be cool to yeah. have and I don't even have an A track player, but I do have a friend that does, but I also know that he like probably wouldn't appreciate it. Yeah, right. But I'm like, well, maybe I could have turned him on to a great fucking record. But yeah. at the same time, I'm just like, I also know I'm selfish enough that I would just keep it to have the thing. Yeah, you right. Know? But, yeah, frame it, you know, yeah, yeah. at this point, you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, I'm definitely stuck with it. Like, I bought... A, a tape deck that would record like um so you could dub tapes you yeah. know with the intention of diying this marla sure. record but then i actually started researching how to do that and i was like oh i'm way over my head with this you know sure. so that's why i decided if i were to pursue that i would have to have help doing yeah. that you know it's also a lot um, of man hours doing that it is i mean i'm lucky enough at this point and it may change in the near future actually but I'm lucky enough to, at the moment, have a lot of free time on my hands. Sure. Um, so if I could figure out how to do that cost effectively, yeah. I could swing it hours wise. But again, like what I bought was pretty cheap and it wouldn't match the quality of getting it sourced outside. You know? yeah. And there's like all these considerations that I never really considered because I never had to deal with it being just the drummer. You sure. Know? sure. So uh, it's it's really eye opening, actually, for the whole process of this this world you know yeah. um so i can appreciate it but it's also it's a lot of work that i don't know if i'm ready for sure know? sure so, right on well I, I didn't even get into the whole like you know post perfect pitch black pre um planets of old mm. uh didn't get into goat snake didn't get yeah, into yeah. so like uh, I, I'm leaving it open for for a part two conversation yeah. i would point. i would welcome it that was sweet a, that was a great conversation um but i am going to get to the six oh yeah your questions, questions. Yeah, yeah yeah i'm cool yeah. with that um what's uh do you remember what your first live concert you went to was it was rush nice yep what time uh, was that it was on um the counterparts tour and i saw them play in mansfield as well <sighs> somebody else said that it might have even been adam so um, maybe i didn't go with adam but he might have been there gotcha. that so both adam and i are huge rush fans sure uh, um, you know, and we're the ones who bring Rush to the table and cave sure. in anyway. Yeah. Um, but we would like, I met Adam in the sixth grade yeah. and I met Steve in the seventh grade. Um, and me and Adam had the connection through Rush and that's yeah. where our bond formed. Uh, and with Steve, it was Nirvana, yeah. you know, so it was like the two different worlds. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he could have, you know, yeah. very well have been at that I, show. I have to go back and listen to it, but I think that that was, yeah. was his thing too. Uh, Beatles or Stones? For me, Beatles. All right. For Adam, I know it's the Stones. Yeah, yeah. Well, anything he said, well, I think his answer was like, 
you should throw the kinks in there too as being like yeah which like but, so there's the the perspective of time right sure but if i'm going back to uh so i'm taking these questions as like initial spark absolutely for me i didn't get into the stones until adam played the shit out of them right. and i got sick of them and yeah. then i was like okay i understand what the yeah. stones are and i like it you know yeah. So for me, like my my father and my uncles would give me, um, you know, like the White Album and Sgt. Yeah. Pepper's. So for me, it's the Beatles. Yeah, I, I I grew up with the Beatles playing in the house. So yeah, it's like the Beatles exactly. are part of my DNA. Like, yep. do I think the Stones are cooler? Absolutely. Do I think the they're Beatles a little more, are more important? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it's also like, like you know, and I said this to Adam. I was like, it's a difference of the Beatles. It was like seven and a half years. Their entire career was it's crazy. Stones have had like fifty-three years yeah. or whatever. It's, it's insane to put things in perspective, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? That's tough because uh-huh. I'm a big sci-fi head. Yeah. Uh, mm, shit. Well, I guess it would be Star Wars because yeah. my first love would have been Star Wars, but sure. I really appreciate Star Trek. Sure. I'm not a Trekkie. Yeah. But I guess uh, so. It would be Star Wars because I get excited about everything that I watch yeah. that has something to do with Star Wars. Yeah. Where with uh, Star Trek, it's really only uh, the next generation. Sure. Some yeah. offshoots, but that's the shit for me. Sure. You know? Sure. So, yeah. And I, I, I remember, like, I was a kid when the next generation was new. Yeah, was exactly. Like, oh, this is cool. And that was part of the home life. Yeah. Know? And especially at that point, because, like, Star Wars was pretty dormant at mm. that point. So I was like, oh, there's new yep. stuff coming out during my lifetime. So, yeah. But, yeah, I'm obviously Star Wars. Is yeah. For I me. mean, that, that hit as a kid. Sure. It's like I, I watched those, you know, the original trilogy, and I can't help, like, tearing up at some moments, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that shit's, like, decades old, you know? Yeah. So Yeah. It's funny because I'm uh, – I'm part of a, a closed Facebook group that Nate started uh, mm. for Star Wars stuff. And it's, oh, yeah. He's he's great in the fact that, like, he's very not gatekeepy yep. about it. And a lot of people in there, and he's like, come on, dudes. We're yeah. all in our 40s. Like, we're all trying to be kids, you know. There's all there's <laughs> fun to be had for everyone. And if this yeah. isn't your jam, cool, but move on. Like, Yeah, that, that, like, we talk about it, obviously. I yeah. mean, you know, between uh, between the members of Cave, and we talk a lot about Star Wars. Yeah. Especially because of all the recent, you know, Disney shows. Sure. Um, but, you know, a common theme is, like, we don't understand why people take it so seriously. Right. I mean, it, it was originally, you know, a kid's movie. Right. But it, it was so serious and so dark because we were kids. And that's, it was, right. like, shocking to us, right. you know? So it's, like, hard to expect any, like, serious cinema out of Star right. Wars, you right. know? It can be really great if you let it be. Right. You know, if you just like let go and enjoy the experience and have fun with it, you yeah. know. So that's where we stand with that. I mean, <laughs> I loved Andor, but I also yeah. oh, that was my favorite. Yeah. That was one of those things that if you had told me ten years ago, hey, there's going to be a show about the trickle down politics of how the empire affects yeah. local biz- business like, and get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Like I couldn't care less about it, and yeah. I was like, that was the fascinating thing about it. Yeah. But I could also imagine being a 15 year old kid now being like, this show sucks. Yeah, yeah. I want lightsabers. I think that's a matter of perspective. Right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so Andor was uh, my most recent favorite. Yeah. I mean, you can't go wrong with um, The Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. but um, And then beyond that, it was Rogue One for me. It's like, yeah. that's great. And I think it's, maybe it's because they're of a darker nature. Sure. They're more of a serious tone, I guess, yeah. you know. Um, and maybe they're not so plagued by writing issues. Sure. As some of the other, uh, you know, movies i guess yeah. but 
Yeah, so those two especially, Andor and, and Rogue yeah. One are my favorites. Rogue One especially because you know how this is going to end yeah, for totally. all of them. So it's just like, all right, I'm along for the ride. And yeah. also, like, I'm rooting for people who are all going to die at the end of this yeah. movie regardless. So, yeah. yeah. And I love that it's not a happy ending for yeah. a Star Wars movie. You right. know, it's it's yeah. like, it's impossible yeah. that that happens, it's, you know? it's, I mean, probably, other than The Empire Strikes Back, it's probably the darkest thing. Darkest, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, cats or dogs? Neither. All right. I have rabbits. That's right. I knew that. I yeah. Knew that. So my my love for creatures uh, is rabbits. I have two lovely creatures, and they're rabbits. So nice. Uh, I can't say I like. I'm head over heels for rabbits. Yeah. Rabbits. 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 I have a bunch of um, friends who are who are rabbit parents too. So that's oh, that's cool. cool. Yeah. It's like it's it's becoming a thing. I think. Sure. Um, but I wish that I had rabbits in my life when I was a kid. Yeah. Because that's what I was looking for. Like so, growing up, I had dogs. I had yeah. cats. Um, but I always wanted the now knowing what having rabbits is like, mm. that's what I was looking for as a kid and a pet, you know, I didn't know this was an option. Yeah. So now it's like, they're not even just pets, they're family members now. Right. Like it's gone that far with me and I, I like that it has, you know, yeah. um, but yeah, so, but if I had to pick between cats and dogs, yeah. I think I would go for dogs. Yeah. I have a more easy time or easy affinity with dogs. Sure. It's in my last name. Yeah. Uh, so Connor's. Is a bastardized form of Okoknobar, uh, which is Irish, obviously, but right. that translates, as far as I'm aware, into um, friend of the hound or friend of the wolf. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so that was interesting to learn years after the fact that I grew up with dogs. My father loves dogs. Yeah. So dogs have been in our family for a long time. But so have cats, but cats have always been kind of a prick, you know? Right. They're always little assholes, and right. that's what they're known for, yeah. you know? Um, so I guess between the two would be dogs, so but fuck that. Rabbits. I'm all rabbits. Yeah. Cool. And then, uh, the last one was a question that we all got as kids and nobody asks adults. What's your favorite dinosaur? Ooh, that's a good one. I don't really think about dinosaurs. Oh, I don't know. You got me on that one. <laughs> um, Hmm. It wouldn't be the T-Rex. He's an asshole. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe whatever the rabbit version of it would be. Um, I don't know. Maybe those those things. I don't know what they're called. They're um, they're. I think they're still alive. Actually, they're like the shelled. Uh, they're like bottom feeders with all the yep. little oh yeah, yeah I know legs. Yeah, yeah, and you can find them in you know um, in fossilized version, right. but they're still alive they're today. Still alive. Yeah. It's not crustaceans, but there's something like that. Right. I, I don't know the name of it. Sure. Yeah. Right on. Um, yeah. For me as a kid, it wasn't Lego. It wasn't um, dinosaurs. It was all Legos, you know? Right on. So, yeah, I, I would build shit out of Legos. But, yeah, I don't know. Dinosaurs is weird. I could never yeah. get into dinosaurs. My, this 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 question was, like, actually the inspiration for my most recent tattoo. I got a, I got a bigger piece, mm-hmm. like, it was two sessions, but I always have this thing because I'm, you know, I'm ADHD as well. And yeah. like uh, instant gratification. So I was like, all right, well, if I'm getting a tattoo worked on, I need a new tattoo at the same yeah. time. So I always get something small. And three days before, a, a friend of mine who I used to work with, like I, I used to work for Trader Joe's, and I happened to go in and she had just done a little doodle oh, sit yeah. at the register. And I was like, I like a dinosaur. She's like, you want it? <laughs> I took it. And then I looked at it for like three days. I'm like, fuck it. I'm getting that as a tattoo. She hasn't seen it yet. She has no idea that I got yeah, it as a tattoo. Yeah. But I was like, I've been talking about dinosaurs for like the last like five months. I yeah. Put a dinosaur on me. So what was it? 
it's kind of like a weird like uh i'll show you when i get up it's just on my knee but it's mm. just like a weird like i think it's a t-rex maybe it's yeah. like a very very simple like i have the the little like sketch in my wallet still but it was right. just like one of those like it almost looks like a kid's drawing yeah it's yeah. just like i was like oh that'll be that'll be fun so i think with as you were talking my mind is spinning and i think it would be a toss-up for me between two of them it would be the um the flying ones the um pterodactyls, pterodactyls. yeah and then uh, the turtle-like one with the spiky tail. Yeah. Spiky boy. I talked about that with someone recently. It's almost like a like a battle mace. At the yeah, end. totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's got like... It's pretty badass. Almost like a tortoise shell, but it's got spikes It's like the, the dinosaur version of an armadillo. Yeah, you know? for sure. For sure. <laughs> I guess I like the, the, the kind of armored dinosaurs, because yeah. that's what that undersea creature yeah, is. the lower know? the ground, taking yeah. shit dinosaurs. Yeah, it's like, fuck you, don't, don't mess with me. Right. You know? Right on. Well, so. that's a... Uh, it's a good place to stop. Uh, yeah, thanks, cool. man. I appreciate you taking the time. That was a great conversation. I yeah, appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it was awesome. It was uh, it was really easy. So excellent, excellent. Yeah. Cool.